Pogo ball is what they call it when you're attacking a convoy of Joes. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do, okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and I'm, what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. Our comic this time around is G.I. Joe number 59 was released on February 10th, 1987, and is of slight significance because with this issue, the title goes from 75 cents per issue to a dollar. The cover by Mike Zeck and Bob McCloud shows Raptor and Cobra Commander, who is in his armored uniform, attacking two Joes. Raptor looks like he's perched on an outcropping of rocks and has his birds helping him, while Cobra Commander is piloting what Hasbro referred to as the Cobra Pogo Ballistic Battle Ball. Mike Zek was known for drawing some incredibly gorgeous G.I. Joe covers that were dynamic and action-packed no matter what he was being required to show. This is obviously one of those Feature the New Toy covers, as was the previous issue's cover, because on that one we had Cobra Commander Reborn with the enemy leader in his new armor, and it's not bad. Zek makes Raptor, who is one of the more ridiculous-looking characters, and the Pogo, which isn't the best-looking vehicle either, look pretty good. Our issue is titled Divergent Paths, and credits are as follows. Larry Hama's script, Ron Wagner pencils, Bob McLeod inks, George Russo's coloring, Joe Rosen lettering, Bob Harris editor, and Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. We open in the secret back room of Fred's garage in Denver, where Fred is helping Cobra Commander's son, Billy, with a new prosthetic leg. Cobra Commander, who is in his armor, tells Billy that he'll have no problem running because Fred's a mechanical genius. Billy then tries to take a step and trips, but recovers by flipping over and landing perfectly, much to everyone's surprise, including his. Meanwhile, in the middle of the desert in Utah, Crankcase and Dusty arrive toward the Slam, which is being put through some tests in order to tell Grand Slam and Tunnel Rat that Hawk wants the Slam packed up so they can move it to Fort Carson via convoy. Back in Denver, Raptor shows up in full bird costume and Fred introduces him to Cobra Commander, who thinks the guy is nuts. The convoy takes off for Fort Carson and is quickly stopped by Outback, who has judged the conditions on the mountain and determined that the early thaw means more chance for disastrous avalanches. On the other side of the mountain, Fred drives Cobra Commander while Raptor and his birds follow. They are headed to a town because Fred believes that someone named Nikki Lee is a Joe. That, of course, would be Tunnel Rat, who earlier was showing the Joes his new G.I. Joe credit card that he was able to use in order to get his paycheck sooner than the paper checks that they usually have to wait for. In Denver, Billy checks out a karate class and has a flash of someone named Storm Shadow. He later enters the class and, well, we'll come back to that. 
Back in the mountains, Fred and Cobra Commander are rerouted by a state trooper, and Fred suspects something is up. So Raptor uses his birds to track the Joes, and they find him. Cobra Commander seizes the opportunity to use the brand new Pogo and attacks the convoy. The Joes do their best to hold him off and protect the slam by firing at him, but then lead him into, an un- into a mountain tunnel where the Pogo doesn't hold out and almost crashes. In Denver, Billy talks to the sensei at the dojo he was checking out and then meets an Asian woman who says that they know about him and the battle armor that Fred made for Cobra Commander. She then proceeds to test Billy by thrusting a sword at him, and he tells her that he's had this test before and pulls her sleeve down to reveal the same tattoo that we've seen on the arms of both Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow. Meanwhile, in the Rockies, Cobra Commander returns to Fred and Raptor and says that while Pogo failed its mission, Raptor's birds were useful and he sees this as an opportunity to take back Cobra. Now, you know this is not my first issue of G.I. Joe, but it is the first in a line of consecutive issues that I would buy off the stands back when they first came out. This is also very much a bridge issue, where certain plots and subplots are concerned. Cobra Commander and Billy have significant events happen to them in issue number 61, and in fact, issue number 61 will begin a huge storyline for a number of characters. Well, issues 57 and 58 more or less wrapped up a number of major storylines, including the fight at the pit and the future of the G.I. Joe team, which is operating as a nomadic sort of group at this moment. I've always admired the way that Hama was able to handle the vast number of characters that were part of the G.I. Joe world, and how he was able to do issues like this with only a few characters as opposed to feeling like he had to feature everyone in the toy line. These Joes are just a few who have been sent to do a specific job, and they come across a few enemies who really aren't even part of the Greater Cobra group, a group that's in a bit disarray, and one we'll really, we really haven't seen since issue 56, although they will return. And it's still compelling enough to make us wonder what Cobra Commander has in store for the rest of his former organization. I guess my one major complaint about this isn't that it's not even Hamas, and it's not even Hamas' fault, is that... It's the Raptor, it's Raptor and the Pogo. The Joe vehicle featured in this issue is called the SLAM, which stands for Strategic Long Range Artillery Machine, and that one honestly looks pretty realistic. The Pogo, on the other hand, looks like it's a reject from the Star Wars mini-rigs, and Raptor, well, it's a guy in a bird costume who holds a falcon. I can't remember if I had this figure or not. I know I didn't own the Pogo or the Slam, but considering how I know that I had quite a number of the figures from 1987, it is very likely that I had Raptor. And he is, I'm sorry, but the closest thing G.I. Joe has to a Mort. Again, it's a guy in a bird costume who holds a falcon. I'm sorry, Larry. But hey, I have to give him credit because he has the guy be a great tracker, and has Cobra Commander be all WTF around him, for the better part of the issue, right up until the end, when he proves himself. The subplot with Billy is also good, because it's seeding something that is going to be important as we go through the issues that I'm covering. There's a connection between him and Storm Shadow that I wasn't aware of at the time, and I'm not completely aware of at this point. Because while I have all of the trades of the Marvel series from volumes number 1 through 7, which means I can read all of issues number 1 through 70, I actually haven't sat down and done the entire read-through, and I might not do it until I have the entire series, or at least most of the series. Truth be told, I might keep going into the revival that Hama has been doing with IDW. I guess we'll see what I can get my hands on, too. Anyway, back on topic here. 
Billy encounters a woman with a sword in a dojo, and while it's not stated outright, this is going to be Jinx, who's the female ninja of the Joe team and also has a connection to the ninja clan that Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow are a part of. It's great stuff, because Hama doesn't telegraph too much, he doesn't over-explain too much, and he gives us just enough to know that we need to stick around because it'll be important later, something that really makes the G.I. Joe comic series worth reading beyond the rather disposable quality of G.I. Joe and the Transformers that we saw early in this podcast series. And I have to give a lot of credit to the quality of this issue to Ron Wagner and Bob McLeod for the art. I've heard of Wagner, although unfortunately that's because he penciled that awful Genesis crossover miniseries in the late 90s for DC. And McLeod is just a master, both as an inker and a penciler, so it's a great combination. They give the characters personality and detail, and also represent all the vehicles very well. I particularly like the attack scene because Wagner makes the road battle between the Pogo and the guys in the convoy jump off the page. You really get the sense that this is happening at a very high speed, and that the Joes don't really know what they're up against. Plus, the touching up of the coloring that IDW did as a part of their digital remastering makes the art pop really well. Overall, it's a really solid issue, and I only say solid instead of great because I know what's coming down the line, which is my all-time favorite G.I. Joe storyline. That, however, won't be for another two issues of the series, and even then, it won't be for another few episodes of this show because we've got some Transformers, Superman, G.I. Joe special missions, and the Todd McFarlane issue of G.I. Joe ahead of us. But with that, I'll be right back. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. So I'm looking at this cover of this issue, and uh, or at least the cover of the issue, the trade paperback, and I remember that, w- that was, this is where I remember starting to read uh, G.I. Joe on the regular. Now, of course, I owned a couple of G.I. Joe comics prior to this, and had the G.I. Joe and the Transformers team-up miniseries, but what's really important about this issue, this, this is the one that begins a consecutive run of buying the book, more or less as it came out. Or at least it begins a sec- consecutive run of buying the book off the rack, as opposed to finding back issues. At the height of what was really a pretty small collection of G.I. Joe comics, I owned just about everything from issue 46 until 66. And considering that I was buying those comics with my paltry allowance, that was actually an accomplishment over the course of little less than a year. Plus, I don't remember why I remember this, but I do. Buying back issues that were $1.25, $1.50, $1.75 from the back issue bins at the comic store actually helped strengthen my math skills. Uh, at least my skills to doing math in my head. I, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but by the time I was done with all this, I could add up those amounts like pretty quickly. So I knew, like off the top of my head, that a dollar fifty plus a dollar fifty is three dollars, and a dollar seventy-five and plus a dollar seventy-five is three twenty-five. So or three fifty. It's three fifty. 
well, it didn't help my math skills that much, but but I, I knew at the time. Anyway, similar retail experiences, such as buying action figures on my own, for instance, taught me how to factor in sales tax. I remember this one time I saved up money for doing extra chores so I could buy my sister a stuffed animal dog for her birthday. It was $15. I saved exactly $15, so I rode my bike up to the local stationery store, which is where they had it. I got it off the shelf, brought it up to the counter, and found out why it was actually a it was actually about a dollar more, and that was like because of sales tax. And by the way, at this point in time, I don't think comic books were subject to sales tax the way that other publications were. Uh, don't ask me why, but I remember that I think the only time I ever paid sales tax at the comic store was when I was buying a trade or an original graphic novel. And I believe at the time, New York State didn't charge sales tax on magazines and newspapers, and comics fell under that heading. So I only paid the actual price for something, so I didn't expect to find out that something was more than I actually thought it was. And there I was with my 15 bucks and singles and fives, maybe a few quarters, and the stuffed animal puppy that I wanted to buy for my sister, getting really nervous because uh, I didn't have the money. Although, to be fair, the guy behind the counter at the stationery store, he knew who I was because my dad used to go in there on a regular basis to buy cigarettes. And then after he quit smoking, it's why when he... That's where he went to buy certs or lifesavers or whatever he was using instead of the cigarettes. And if you think about it, I'm not sure that candy is the best thing for a person's teeth, but then again, neither are cigarettes. And I know that at some point when I was in high school, my dad had a ton of dental work done, but it's that that might have to do with that, or it might have to do with the fact that you know he had dental work done by the Army, Army Dental Corps when he was a nom. So, you know, whatever. At any rate, he quit smoking 30 years ago and he hasn't gone back since. And the point of this story was the sales tax anyway. So eight and a half percent sales tax in New York at the time, the person behind the counter knew me. I can't remember if they just held on to the dog for me. If I just put it back on the shelf. I mean, I do remember that I was kind of upset. I went home and I think my mom went ahead and gave me like $2 to cover it after she actually explained sales tax to me. At some point in the future, she also showed me how to figure out sales tax on a calculator so that whenever I would save up for something that I was going to buy, I had what I needed in order to get it. And it's all moot, by the way. I don't think I really pay for a lot of stuff in cash nowadays anyway, although there are some times when I do have to figure out what something is going to cost. And what I always do find a little amusing is that I still have that mentality of sales tax in Suffolk County, New York, where it was like, eight and a half percent or something at the time and um in virginia it's actually like five percent or so it's it's much smaller which by the way is why you don't double the tax when you tip in virginia because then you're giving a 10 percent tip rather than 15 percent. it's still and even both of those are still too low i have a tendency to tip 20 uh something that one of my roommates in college got on my ass where he's like you tip one fifth of your of your your bill and i remember saying well that's what 20 percent is isn't it like yes i tip i tip well i'm not an ass just uh. anyway um being able to save up for something and buy it with my own money was a pretty big deal to me when i was a kid especially when it was a purchase for which i provided my own transportation fourth grade really marked a point where i was given a little more independence than i had been meaning i could go places on my bike that hadn't necessarily been forbidden before, but that there wasn't much of supervision as there had been, and the radius of my journeys had grown. Now, I, I mean, I grew up in a part of my hometown that was really close to Main Street, so a lot of the stores where we rent, well, they were within biking distance. Um, 
you know, and you have the public library as well. My Little League games would mostly be at the park about a block away from my house. I get to go to those. I mean, this would be the time when I, pe- when I would start to go on my own to the pizza place, the movie theater, the video store, the stationery store, the library, and the comic store because they were all pretty close to my house. And it sounds really archy. And Sable is a town like that. So, you know, at least it was a certain to, to a certain extent when I was growing up. But from this point out, I got the vast majority of these comic books from Amazing Comics, which is still in business. Although Bob has since retired. Uh, he's retired after 30 years of running the store. It's been renamed Android's Amazing Comics. It moved locations about a block away from its original location to a bigger uh, store, which is really... And I've been there, and the new owner is um, is really nice. It's cool. I recommend going there if you're ever in Sayville. Uh, the new owner has a bunch of old back issues. Uh, in an effort to put them out, he actually puts them in 50 cent bins. So I've gotten some decent stuff that I don't see at my LCS anytime I go back there. And G.I. Joe number 59, definitely purchased there uh, with my own money. And the store had become my place to go to for comics for the better part of the year. And then, of course, when I really became a comics collector in 1990, it was incredibly important. And having something to look forward to spending your own money on became a pretty big deal to me, too. You know, I'd get birthday money, I'd get Christmas money, my mom and dad would take me to TSS or Toys R Us, have me pick something out. But doing this made me feel way more like a big kid. Or something like that. You know, even if it was G.I. Joe comics. I'll be back in about a week for Transformers number 28. So until then, feel free to leave a comment uh, on the on the post, either on popcultureaffidavit.com or on Facebook. Um, feel free to email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening and take care.